Well, I found my Bible, and it's, it's where I left it last week. It's still open at Daniel. So we have, we're back at Daniel again. And this, of course, is your last week. In fact, the title of the sermon that Mark gave I thought was kind of cute, but uh, we chatted about it a, a couple of days ago. It's called The Rest of Daniel. Well, this is The Rest of Daniel. We're going to take the last portion of the book of Daniel. It's been an enjoyable study. We started back at the end of the summer. It's been a great study this fall and through the Advent season. Uh, but then it also, toward the end, it talks about the rest of Daniel, Daniel's rest. After hearing this horrible, horrible dream and vision, there was a repose, there was a rest, there was a resolution for Daniel, and we'll look at that at the end. But let's read now the final chapter, beginning there in verse 4, Daniel 12, 4. <clears throat> but you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on the bank of the stream and one on the other bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream, How long shall it be until the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore, by him who lives forever, that it would be for a time, times, and half a time, and that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, O oh my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? And he said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 13,335 days." Go your way until the end, and you shall rest, and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. <clears throat> From time to time, I give you a reading assignment, and I'm going to give you one again. Um, it's optional. There will not be a quiz, and uh, so it's, it's up to you, but this is worth your time. It is a little summary of the book of Daniel. Uh, and it's in this week's, this edition that just came out this week of the Every Thought Captive little article, the devotional article that uh, I think Patrick Lafferty started that years ago. And we've continued with quite a few of our writers. And this one is written by David Williams. I think most of you know David. He's our new church planning resident that is here with us and working among us for a year or so to uh, see what the Lord's will is in planning another church that PCP's pl planted so many. But David Williams wrote a, it's a little bit of a lengthy article. It's, it's longer than usual, but it's, you can read it in just a few minutes. But it is the best summary overview of the book of Daniel I've ever seen. It, it not only covers the material of the book of Daniel, the content, but it also gives kind of a, a perspective on Daniel and talks about how Daniel is to be handled, how it is to be viewed, and then gives a very practical application of how we should uh, continue to use it. I wish I'd have written that thing myself, but uh, 
but I, I can heartily recommend it to you. Some things are hard to get a handle on and to bring into what Spurgeon always called a short compass, bringing things into kind of a condensed form. And David has done that with the whole book of Daniel. And I can't see that he's uh, missed any stone. He's turned them all over. So it's been, it was, it's a great summer. It's in, it's in this, this week's uh, edition of Every Thought Captive, which you can get off of the church website. Now, as we come to this particular passage, we remember our context. The last three chapters here is this horrible vision that Daniel sees that literally, viscerally disturbs him. In fact, it puts him on his knees, on his face. He has to be personally ministered to. It's, it's a horrible scene. And I'll tell you what the scene is. We don't know the particulars, but the vision that Daniel got this time was a vision of horrible treatment and horrible persecution and, and uh, oppression that would come upon God's people. God's people, first of all, as the ancient people of God in the, in the land of Babylon, upon their return back to Jerusalem, the things that would happen to them and things that would happen. Also, also concurrent with that, about a 500-year span of history that would take place and how God's people were to live and to function during that epoch of time. But then... Daniel is concerned about the end of the matter because over and over it keeps talking about this is what's going to happen up until the end. And the end is two endings for sure. One is the ending of the theocratic nation of Israel, the ethnic peoples that were formed into a kingdom that had been overthrown all the way through all of the ups and downs of that kingdom until it would finally be destroyed, completely destroyed in 70 AD. But during the reign of that fourth empire, the Roman empire, there would come a new king, a new emperor, and a new empire. And that was in the stone that came out of the mountain. Of course, we know that to be Christ. And Christ stood before the judgment of God. And God judged the nations. And he gave the kingdoms of this world to his son, Jesus Christ. And so the Lord and, and Christ is the, now the new king of kings and Lord of lords. And he has begun his reign which he did during what we call the first advent. And that reign takes place all throughout history. And we're living in the middle of that history now. You know, where is the 20th century in biblical history? Well, it's there. And we're in the midst of it because things have made, remained roughly uniform. Uh, there's a uniformitarianism that's in the historical context all the way through to the times in which we live. In other words, it ain't no different now than it was then. We are under persecution, we are the minority, we are a kingdom of priests, we are a group of people that have been rescued by our Redeemer, but yet we're still living in the kingdoms of this world, and we're still having to relate to that, and that's what the thrust of the book of Daniel is about, and that's what this final vision was all about. Now, one of the things that happened here is they're kind of wrapping it up. The voice that he's been, uh, been speaking to him, which I believe was the pre-incarnate Christ, a Christophany, but it, it says an angel. In fact, it names Michael specifically, and it very well could have been that angel who was the protector of God's people, communicating the word to the people. But nevertheless, Daniel gets the prophecy. He re receives these predictions, and it's so troubling that he wants to know, when will it all be over? It's not so much that he's looking for dates as much as he's looking for relief. When does this vision end? How does it end? I was listening to a Bible teacher a couple of weeks ago on YouTube, and, 
And uh, it was a new teacher to me. I wasn't familiar with him, he, and he ended up being a pretty good teacher. I enjoyed listening to quite a few of his, his lectures. But he said, you know, we're the only people that know how the world ends, Christians. Uh, we know how it ends. The secular humanists, they don't know. The atheists, they don't know. The people that, are, that follow other world religions, they don't know. We have an eschatology, a last day or a last hour theology. We know how God's going to wrap it up. And that changes our perspective on everything. It changes our view on humanity, how we are to treat humans in this interim time. It changes our view on, on the, the uh, progressivity of, of good and, and kingdom building. We're not so uh, optimistic as to, as to believe in utopian dreams and pursue never-never lands, which is exactly what utopia means. It means no place. And we're not to be caught up into the spirit of the age, whatever the age is, because we know that there's a teleos, there's an end, there's a goal to the end of the work of God on earth. Uh, one of the reasons we shouldn't be too panicked about trying to save the planet is because the planet's going to be here as long as God wants it to be here. And it's going to be the kind of place where man can dwell as long as God wants us to dwell here. And the apocalyptic literature of the Bible is filled with horrible things that will happen to the planet. And then we finally get to the full revelation in the New Testament from the Apostle Peter of all people that the earth's going to melt away with fervent heat. So whatever efforts we've made and whatever sacrifices we've made and however we've completely changed our our socio-economic and governmental structures to save the planet, it's going to be all for naught. Because God's going to wrap this thing up when He wants to wrap it up and when He determines how it will be wrapped up. And that's really what it is here. And, and Daniel in this particular passage is kind of concerned about that. And so what we have uh, here are several peak things that I want us to just glance at today. The first thing I think we need to back up and backfill just a little bit <clears throat> because we haven't had time to spend any time on it, but there's this word that talks about the wise, the wise. I'm gonna, we're going to look at the wise, the end, the purification, and then a little personal word about this eschatology at the end. So let's move through these, these uh, uh, perspectives rather quickly. The wise, the wise are mentioned in the previous chapter as part of the vision. And one of the things that the, uh, the messenger of the Lord, or the Lord himself as it is, tells us in chapter 11, verse 33, it says, and the wise among the people shall make many understand. The wise are the people that go through all of this, and I will call it what it is, all of this tribulation working its way to a great tribulation, a great trouble toward the very end, which will be very brief. That's what the time, times, and half a time means, that it's a period of indeterminate length, but you can tell it's going to be very short. In fact, the number of days that are prescribed is about three and a half years, and it's offset for about a month because there's two different ways of looking at when the period starts, but it's, it's pretty much three and a half years. It's a real short period of intense, intense tribulation that'll take place at the very, very end before the Lord returns in the great second advent. And people wonder, will the church go through the tribulation? Some of us are worried about being left behind. Believe me, you're gonna be left behind. 
Because there's no such thing as a secret, private rapture of the church before the tribulation begins. The whole point of the Bible from the start to the finish is God's people shall suffer tribulation. And the great tribulation, the great trouble is what we're working up to. And finally it will be, as the apocalyptic literature in the Bible talk about, no days like it ever seen on earth. And if it wasn't for the mercies of God in shortening the days that people would be deceived and destroyed, even the elect. God's people do go through tribulation, have gone through tribulation, and will go through tribulation. That's just the nature of the course. God's people on earth will suffer as our Lord suffered on earth. He suffered all the way to the cross, and He told us to go ahead and pick up our cross and follow Him in that course. So those who are entertaining some idea that there's an escape, that God just wouldn't let his people go through the great tribulation, are really seriously mistaken. Nowhere in the Bible does it talk about two comings of Christ at the end of time. There's one coming of Christ, and it is when God's people have gone through tribulation and when we've reached the very end, the last day, the eschaton. And so that's the, the assurances that are given about the end. Uh, the, um, the days are filled with tribulation completely. And in this end, there is um, a time when God's people are going to be purified. They're going to be worked over. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. The, uh, the wise, though, are mentioned here, is the wise will be the people that understand this perspective. And wisdom in the Old Testament, in the Bible entirely, is basically, it's not just an encyclopedic accumulation of knowledge, but it is understanding certain truths, understanding how they're true, and how they're applied to daily life. Wisdom in the, in the Bible is prudence. It is living well. It is understanding what has happened. It's, it's knowing some things. It, it's not just foresight, but it's insight. Knowing yourself. Knowing God's operations on earth. Knowing God himself personally. Having established that relationship through Christ and the indwelling Holy Spirit. It's knowing how to live. It's knowing uh, when to hold them and when to fold them. It, it's knowing the practical issues of life. And the, the wise, or the prudent in, in the earth are those who know the will of God, know the way of God, have confidence in God, and live their life according to the perspective that He gives instead of just whatever's blowing in the wind of the culture of that moment. Another reference to the wise, it says, Some of the wise shall stumble so that they shall be refined purified and made white until the end of the time for it still awaits the appointed time that's verse 35 of chapter 11 and of course we'll talk about that because that's a a repeat of uh, or, or the a reference we had in the passage we looked at this uh, just a moment ago our final passage about God's people being sifted refined purified and it is the wise who go through that but even the wise shall stumble. That ought to be serious admonition to us this morning. That even those of us who allegedly know the will and ways of God still will, will stumble. 
we'll still fall. The pathway won't be smooth for us. We won't perish. We won't fall away necessarily, but we will have a, a, a rough road of it. And there will be some pitfalls along the way. So even, even the wise in all of their prudence and wisdom are not protected from it all. The verse just before we started our passage today, 12.3, And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And in parallel to that, it says, And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. The, the prudent, the wise will, will seek to inform others. They will teach others. They will have understanding and they will seek to win others. The Bible says, he that winneth souls is wise. It, it is wisdom that we make known to others, our family, our friends, our peer group, our, our ethnic group, our families, our community, our nation, our world, the, the, the ways of God. And those that convert and those that are turned uh, are, are considered to be stars uh, not necessarily in our crown, but stars in the heavens above that make us uh, glow and shine. The next reference to the word, the fourth one and the final one, was down in the, toward the end of the passage. It says, none of the wicked shall understand. If the wise is someone who has prudence and understanding and understands a certain amount of, of knowledge, and by the word, by the way, the word knowledge is an English translation of scientia, out of the Vulgate, which we get our word science. People are talking about science. Are we going to believe the science? What's the science say? Follow science. Do you believe in science? Are you a science denier? We hear all this kind of thing in our, in our culture today. Well, real science is understanding truth. If it's not true in terms of the reality that God has framed up in Genesis 1 and 2, in 1 and 2 then it's not truth. And what God says frames the... the um, the whole earth, all of reality, that the whole earth and everything that's in it, including mankind. So if we shall uh, be opposite of the fool, the fool is the one that's evil, that's wicked, that is atheistic, that is a scoffer, that is a God denier, that is a blasphemer. The fool, we, most of our culture is a foolish culture. We, we, if we think about it, we listen and they just completely ignore, deny, and everything that God has set forth. Well, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. That's his perspective. But the fool comes to a ruin. The fool in Scripture is, comes to a ruin in a, in a number of ways. He comes to a ruin financially. He comes to a ruin sexually, socially. And ultimately, he comes to a, an, an, an end, a destruction governmentally. The king that does not rule wisely in righteousness will be brought down in God's, in God's timing. And so, none of the wicked shall understand. Um, are you kind of appalled when you evaluate what's going on in our culture today of just how stupid things are? The stuff we're asked to believe and affirm, which, which is insane, and I'd list them for you, but I think you know what they are. But it's unbelievable. That's, an under, that's the understatement of the chapter. None of the wicked shall understand. They don't understand basic e economics. They don't understand basic sociology. They don't understand basic biblical psychology. They don't even know what the human, the human being is all about. 
in God's creation. Never mind the image of God, just the way God constructed all of creation. There seems to be a, a lack of understanding. <clears throat> and most of this lack of understanding is certified by people that have PhD at the end of their name. Well, that's my shot at academia this morning. <laughs> but listen to the contrast, the parallel statement, a contrasting parallelism. But those who are wise shall understand. And that's really what it amounts to. That's what we're looking for. We, in, in all of your seeking, seek wisdom so that you know what's going on. So that when all the world about you is just being completely insane, you can sit still and be still and know that God is God and that he's in control and that he's given you a measure of understanding so that you're not panicked. You're not living in fear. You're not mistaken in your actions. You're not putting all of your resources into a lost cause. But instead, you're following his way. That's the wise. The wise have understanding, and they are given that in this particular period of time. So the wise, and we talked about the end, the, the end of the time. It's just talking about the end of the appointed time. And at this point, Daniel was told to um, take the book shut up the words and seal the book until the end of time. He said, many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. Well, is there any question that we've had an increase in knowledge? Uh, just in our the second half of the 20th century was an explosion in knowledge, not necessarily an explosion in understanding, but at least in science, in, in, in some understanding of so many things. And also this may have a reference, and Calvin says it does, is that this running to and fro and this increasing knowledge is the preaching of the gospel. That, there, that what's in Daniel's book and what's in the word of God goes beyond the small group of ethnic Jews in Babylon in the 5th century B.C. or 6th century B.C. It goes wide to the world. The gospel preaching is, is in view here. But at, at any rate, there's a massive increase in, uh, in, in, in uh, human knowledge, and that's what uh, is predicted on up until, until the end. Um, the problem in our day, I think we're having to grasp all of this, is that we've had it so easy in our culture. As I've mentioned, I think almost every Sunday we've been on this series, we've, we've inherited not just a Christian culture. The Western world got a Christian culture. Europe got a Christian culture. We had a Puritan culture. There's a difference. The founders of this country were under principally the, the ethic and the perspectives of the, the Puritans of England and other countries. In other words, it was a, a much more refined and much more sensitive and a much more biblical and a much more godly form of Christianity than just your medieval Catholicism or even just your run-of-the-mill reformed theology. The Puritans went way beyond Luther in terms of ethic and in terms of human behavior and in devotion. The flowering of that on these shores were probably the writings and the teachings of Jonathan Edwards, who's the fountainhead of so much of American thinking uh, coming out of the colonial days and the early uh, days of, well, actually before we even had a republic, we were still colonial in those days and in the first great awakening. And, and um, so we've had this understanding. Now it's corrupted, it's eroded, it's about gone. My whole life I heard school teachers one after another make fun of the Puritan heritage. Oh, being a Puritan means that you're afraid somebody somewhere's having fun. That's not a definition of Puritanism. Most of the fun that's mentioned or conduct 
conducts that are deleterious to our souls, principally in the area of riotous living, uh, sensual and sexual type freedoms and revolutions. We see where that gets us. Read Romans chapter 1. We find that there's first a sexual revolution, then there's a homosexual revolution, and then there's a depraved mind. People can't think straight, they don't know facts, and they don't understand. That's the downgrade of the sinful condition, not only of individuals, but of a whole societies and maybe whole cultures and maybe the whole planet Earth moves in that form of reprobation of a downgrade. So that's really what's going on. In our, in our country, we've lived so comfortably that it's enabled us to be casual about our Christianity. And I think we take our meeting together and our fellowship together and our are, are bearing one another's burdens, all the one another scriptures of the, Old, of the New Testament, we take those less seriously than we should. So there is a, a, um, a casualness. There's also a carnality to our Christianity. Uh, we tend, Barna tells us over and over that the basic habits of the believers in America, the evangelicals in particular, are statistically no different from those of the population in general. Isn't that pitiful? You know, the, the living out of wedlock, the divorce and remarriage, the attitudes toward the Bible, the attitudes, statistically no different than the culture around about us. In other words, we've just been boiled like a frog in the water of the, of, of the culture. And so we're, we're living in, in that carnality and we're comfortable in it. We don't see any problem. We'll see the great tribulations that are coming upon us and they're already here really are going to move us one way or another off this this, this uh, uh, sweet spot where we've been just sort of sitting and enjoying life as Christians. Another thing that's happened to our Christianity, in my opinion, is we've become way too corporate. As America has become extremely uh, tuned in to the limited liability corporation and all of the, tech, the uh, tax implications and all of the things regarding that organization and that approach to life, which, by the way, has a lot of unbiblical features in it, one of them is the separation of ownership from management. And therefore, there's a destruction of basic stewardship. The Bible in corporate ownership and in business ownership counsels us to have the owners be the managers and have personal responsibility. And so that's another subject. In fact, that's a whole series of, of lectures on, on economics. But, but we, we've gotten real comfortable in that. And so we've just taken it right over to the church. And we treat our churches, our parachurch organizations, our denominational structures, almost everything we have, we just look at it as another corporation. We sign it up, we get it a, uh, get a tax-exempt status, we get to get a board, we hire management, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We have absentee ownership in a lot of ways, et cetera, et cetera. And the church has, has operated in that framework, and it has nowhere near the New Testament framework of the ancient church as outlined in the New Testament. And so we're going to, that's going to get shaken up. That's going to be part of the, of, of the shaking up. Well, the third thing is the purification. And we're almost out of time here, but let me just briefly, uh, by the way, that was summarized in stanza three of how firm a foundation. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace shall, uh, all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. 
And that's the language of this, of this scripture here. It is the purification. That's what's going to happen. He says, many will purify themselves and make the verse um, 10, will make themselves white and be refined. But the wicked shall act wickedly. God's people are in a place where we're being, we're being purified. In other words, the stain, the defilement, the sin, uh, the uh, contagion, the pollution, the, the, the shame, everything that's involved in our sin is going to be bleached out of us. There's, there's three processes that are described, and they're pretty self-evident. One is the process of purification. That is, even the garment, clean as it can be, when it's worn in the world, it gets spotted and, and contaminated, has to be rewashed. So the fuller's soap and the bleach that is used is used here about cleaning up the Christian and making us. The, the New Testament calls for people that are unstained by the world. Remember that phrase out of the New Testament, unstained by the world. And so we are, we are bleached, we are purified, and we are made white. The point of purification is to remove every spot, every stain, every blemish in our lives. Are we working toward that degree of holiness? Are you, are you introspective enough to want the Lord to take out of your life everything that is a stain, that is a blemish, that is a pollution, every uh, speck of sin in your life? Are you, are you conscientiously working toward that? Well, maybe you haven't been pushed to it. Maybe you haven't been prodded. Maybe you haven't been motivated to it. Well, that's what, that's what the trial, the fiery trials do for us. They, they, they w go make us white. We got to get white because we're a bride that is absolutely perfect before the bridegroom. And that's the way we'll be presented. The new Jerusalem is prepared. as How's God going to clean us up if he doesn't put some bleach and some, some, some purging agent to our souls, the blood of Christ, the washing of regeneration, and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. And that's what comes to us in this, in this purification. The other one is, is a picture of refined metal, the gold and silver and other metals that are put into the fire to burn off the dross, to burn off the impurities, to, to, to render it pure gold, refined and tried, as the scripture says, in a furnace seven times over. Now that's, that's the picture that we have, true metal. Well, in order to do this, the Lord has to put us through, and he does put us through, this tribulation. Now, there is a, an implement in the ancient world called the tribulum, and it's a big, heavy board. In fact, it may be several boards that are bolted together, and then they have a real rough edge on the bottom, and sometimes they will actually lace in flint and some hard stone to give it a very uneven and abrasive bottom to this big board, and then they would lay it down over the wheat and walked the oxen and the mules and the, the donkeys over it. And as it did, it would shift and grind. And when they got through, when they pulled the tribulum up, there was the wheat separated from the chaff. And that's what God's doing in our lives with the great tribulations. The tribulum is being applied to us in our life. And uh, let me just read one or two passages. I know I'm just about out of time here, but let me read a couple of passages, at least one out of the New Testament that will, that will help us a little bit with that. Titus 2. Listen to this, the way the, uh, Paul sums it up in, to uh, young Titus. 
For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearance of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify, purify, for himself a people, for his own possession, who are zealous of good works. And then finally, let me say one more word, and that is concerning the, the last verse there, the rest of Daniel. The, the particular passage uh, is, reads this, but Daniel, go your way until the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. Do you catch the references there? When you read your Bible enough, little, little uh, spotlights begin to kind of pop up here and there. There's two references here. One is to rest. Daniel is to rest. And we know finally and ultimately that rest is in Christ. God gave the people after great destruction rest. That's what Noah's name means. The name Noah means rest. And he was supposed to give rest after the great purging of the flood. But it wasn't a permanent rest. It didn't last. They were going into Canaan. And they were supposed to have rest there after going through the ordeals of slavery in Egypt and the, and the ordeal in the wilderness. When they got into the promised land, there was, was the land of rest. It was a promise of rest. And Joshua was going to give them rest. But they never got rest. And finally we come to Christ. He says, come unto me, all you that labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He said, we'll find rest to our souls. So that's really what Daniel, here's the thing about it. We can talk about eschatology all day long, the last day, what's going to happen, what's going to happen with the second coming and the rapture and the tribulation, all that kind of stuff. But all of that matters a lot, but it doesn't matter as much to you as your last day. Never mind the last day of, of, of the, the era. What's the last day of your life? What's the last day of your own personal eschatology? And that's what has happened here. At the very end, after all of this and all that Daniel's done, his own personal eschatology, his own personal end is being addressed. Daniel, he's about 90 years old, maybe, as, as old as 90. You can go to your rest. What is your rest? What is your repro repose? Is it in Christ? Are you trusting in Christ alone, resting in Christ alone for salvation? And the other thing here is the... Uh, and stand in your allotted place. You catch the reference there? The, the allotment in the Old Testament was the portion of the land that the people received when they got into Canaan. When Joshua brought them into Canaan, they conquered the land. Then there came a period of time, you remember in the book of Joshua, where they divided up the land. The largest portion went to Ephraim which, by the way, was the tribe of Joshua. What a coincidence. <laughs> the general gets the biggest chunk of land and, and the best land. But that was the blessing that God had given through Joseph. Joseph had been the savior of God's people back in the day. And as a reward, God gave his inheritance, Ephraim, who was the descendant of Joseph. They gave him the biggest allotment. But everybody got an allotment in the land, except, of course, the Levites. The Levites didn't get an allotment in the land. The Lord says, I'm your allotment. And so ultimately, Christ is the ultimate allotment. And that's what we find uh, when we get to the New Testament. Uh, Paul uh, lays this out uh, pretty well in, 
and uh, spells it out. Listen to this phrase here and listen for the word um, inheritance. And that's what this is. This is the allotment. Ephesians 1, 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, you believed in him. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. That's the end. The end is resting in Christ and receiving an in, our inheritance in Christ. And the whole point of our purification is to get us ready for that day. Count it not strange, brethren, when you endure the fiery trial. 